Um, as you probably know, uh, this time of year is called Advent, um, typically in the church calendar for churches that follow a church calendar. It's the four Sundays leading up to Christmas. And um, Advent means coming or arrival. We say things like the advent of the automobile, right, to refer to the time when the, the automobiles were created and came on the scene. And so the Advent season has to do with the coming or arrival of Jesus, of course. Um, this, this makes sense leading up to Christmas. Uh, but actually, in the history of the church, uh, there has often been a focus um, on the second coming of Jesus. Advent was often a time to um, get our hopes and anticipations on fire, alive for Jesus' return. And if you've been with us for a year or longer, you know that this is usually uh, what we use this time for. Uh, we usually do a series called Expectant um, during this Advent season um, to consider the hope we have in Jesus and to live with expectancy, longing for that. Um, especially for those of us living in a society that is very busy, uh, very distracted, very wealthy, and, and in many ways very worldly, um, this is something we don't do very well. That is, put our hope in something that is more than a few days down the road, a few hours down the road, and something that we can't fully see. So today and next week, we're going to do sermons in this, in this annual series, this expectant series. Today, we're going to consider the object of our hope, what it is we have to hope in, what God's people have to hope in. And then next week, we'll look at the practice of this hope. What does that actually mean? How does that change our lives as we live with hope here and now? Um, today, we're going to be in Revelation 21. And to begin with, imagine that you are getting ready for a vacation to go somewhere that you haven't been before or perhaps that you haven't been in a while. Um, perhaps you, you go on YouTube and you, you watch videos, say, of uh, Disneyland, Disney World, Great Wolf Lodge, or just a city, San Diego, and you, you're trying to get an idea of what it's like to go there. Uh, kids, how many of you have been to the Great Wolf Lodge? Okay, before you go, did you, some, some wannabe kids in there as well. Um, before you went, did you watch some videos and get an idea of what it would be like? Did that help you get excited for, for going there? How much more so is that the case? Should, do we need something to hang our hopes on um, when it comes to the life that God has for us after this life? If God is planning and preparing an eternal kind of paradise for all who are his, and we are called to hope in that now, and we are, we are called to live with hope in that, not just put one step in front of the other, which we also do, we live just by faith now, but we are also called to live in hope in what is to come. We want and we need to know what that involves, what we're hoping in. Now, God hasn't seen fit to answer all of our questions about this, but he does give us many things on which to hang our hope. And we're going to look at some of those today in Revelation 21, a passage that specifically, uh, one of the best passages for doing this. So before we jump in there, let me just set up um, 
The book of Revelation, as you may know, the book of Revelation is a very unique book. It can be a very challenging book. Um, so it's a little bit hard to just jump in, you know, towards the end without giving some sort of context. So the first three verses of the book are helpful. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. So the book of Revelation is a series of visions given by God through Jesus Christ to the Apostle John. As the name Revelation implies, it reveals things, and it does so primarily in two ways. First, it reveals what is to come in the future. There is there is a future aspect to Revelation. Now, there's disagreement on how much of the book and which parts have to do with our future. But nonetheless, there is, there is a future aspect to what is in Revelation, revealing things that are to come. Secondly, the book of Revelation reveals what is happening in the spiritual or heavenly realm. Revelation pulls back the curtains, if you will, like these curtains we have in the back, pretend they were closed. It pulls back the curtains so that we can see into the true state of things, what God is up to even now, what he is up to throughout history and in the future. And chapters 21 and 22, the last two chapters of the book, which we're going to cover a few verses in, uh, are, are unique in that pretty much everyone agrees what they are talking about, which is not the case of all of Revelation. Uh, pretty much everyone agrees that these two chapters are talking about the still in our future. These things are still to come when Jesus returns and the life that he ushers in. So we're going to focus on just the first four verses of Revelation 21, but I want to read the preceding passage to get a little context. The previous passage in chapter 20 is a vision of the final judgment before the throne of God and Fair warning, it is a somewhat jarring passage. Starting at verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And if anyone's name was not written, found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Now, this is a good place to just remind ourselves that this is, we believe, God's word. This is God's word to us. This is God speaking true words, true revelation of what the future looks like, in part. And as such, it should arouse our attention. It should cause us to stand up straight cause us to realize that there is much more at stake in life than we realize. 
Life is much more significant and weighty than we realize. Good and evil are much more opposed, are much more real and serious than we realize. How we live matters much more than we realize. Specifically, acknowledging and loving God with our lives or dismissing Him and rejecting Him and hating Him matters much more than we realize. If God has communicated His will to us and invited us to turn away from our sinful self-reliance and self-worship and has shown us how we can gain access into His grace and favor, um, if He has said clear statements like, all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved and for God so loved the world that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And we ignore this and we just say something like, well, I'm sure God will understand in the end. He'll figure it out. It'll be fine. We deserve zero pity. And I don't say that as a personal opinion. That's not just me saying that. I say that because that's what God tells us in his word. Right now, there is the offer of pity, of mercy, of grace by the blood of Jesus, if we would only come. But when God throws those into the lake of fire, whose names are not written in the book of life, and all that is hidden is revealed, all of the motivations, all of the conditions of our hearts, all of our wills, all of our actions, and we see the true worth of God for what it is, there will be no pity for those individuals. None. It will be seen that they have continually and repeatedly and finally rejected God as God spurned his blood-bought mercy and repeatedly ignored both his invitations and his warnings like this one. And we are told that in that day, God's people will worship him for his justice in condemning such hard-hearted, rebellious sinners to hell. That's a shocking thing to consider, but... As you go through the book of Revelation, you see this happen. Just one example in, in chapter 11. We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, for who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged, and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Just as there is even now in this world great rejoicing and relief when justice is brought about. When there is clear injustice and evil and a sentence is given and we rejoice and we find relief and we are pleased in that, so on that day there will be rejoicing and relief. And the reason that we may struggle with this now surely is owing to our very small views of God and his authority and his beauty and his worth. We just don't think ignoring him 
is all that serious of a crime. And passages like this correct us. They show us what we are truly here for, what life is really about, and how much it matters. This is the intensity of the revelation we are given concerning those who don't turn to Christ. And again, there's nothing about it that allows us to just shrug our shoulders and say, meh, it'll all work out. I'm sure God will understand. He'll grade on a curve, right? It'll all work out. No, it is meant to awaken us from that very attitude, from our very small views of God, our numbness to the things of God and the glory of God, and turn us right side up. And, and it truly is right side up. Life is much more significant and precious and purposeful than we realize. But then the vision changes as we turn to chapter 21 to God's plans for his people. And it is equally intense, but in a glorious and joyous and desirable way. Revelation 21 um, just as in the last passage, there's lots of heightened imagery and symbolism here that is meant to awaken our senses and our longings. And we can't, we're not going to unpack all of this today. The first four verses. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Uh, this chapter will go on to, so the, this bride adorned for her husband is, is in fact God's people, God's redeemed people, and the chapter will go on to describe uh, the people with all of, decked out in all this jewelry, because it's a bride coming down the aisle, and everyone stands in awe of God's people because of God's work in them. Verse 3, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Now, before getting into this, we need to ask, what makes these people so different from the, 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 the previous people, because the situation could not be more stark, right? God is pleased to dwell with these people. Who are these people, and what makes them any different? And the answer is not, well, they're just better people. The answer is not, these are the, the really religious people. These are the really moral people who took things seriously, and they were just simply more deserving. No, the answer the Scripture gives is that these are the people who called on the name of the Lord. These are the people who believed in the Son who was given to die for our sin. These are the people who did not stumble and were not offended by Christ crucified for sinners, but latched on to that, cried out for that, cried out to God, and then boasted and made much of, of Him. The difference between life apart from God in hell and life with God in His kingdom all centers on trust in or rejection of Jesus as Lord and Savior. 
There is no hope, there is no point in hoping in eternal life with, with God if Jesus is not now Lord of our life through faith. And I want to say, if, if you today do, are not sure where you stand on this, we, we would love to talk to you. The elders would love to talk to you. Most, I'm sure most of the people in this church would love to talk to you about that. But if Jesus is Lord, if you've come to him by faith, what is the hope that he calls us and invites us to have? And today we're looking at the object of this hope. What is it? What does it look like? What are we hoping in? And this passage will give us three hooks on which to hang our hopes, our longings, our imaginations. So let me just give them to you up front, and we'll briefly talk through them. So the first, the new creation. Second, the unmediated presence of God. And third, the removal of sin and its effects. First, our hope is in a new creation. Um, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. So Revelation draws heavily on the Old Testament. Um, if you were a, a Bible scholar, um, you, would, you would go through Revelation uh, and see all of these connections to the Old Testament. And here is, is one of them. The, the phrase, new heavens and earth, should jog your memory, or perhaps might jog your memory, the, of the very first verse in the Bible, right? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. This phrase refers to creation, to all of creation, to the universe. Uh, heaven in this context isn't referring to that place where God lives, but rather the heavens, that which is above and beyond the earth, all that exists. And so we are being told here that there will be a new, or as many believe, a radically renewed creation. The, the final home and the final hope of God's people is not one of disembodied souls living up in a non-material, non-physical, ethereal existence in the clouds. It is life on earth. Uh, the context, the example that we're given for imagining and beginning to put our hope in this life is this earth. Life eternal for God's people will be much like life in this world, yet without sin and its effects. I, I think one way to help, help us think about that is it will be very much alive with sights and sounds and, and touch and tastes and smells, all perfectly revealing the wisdom and goodness and creativity of God and leading us to rejoice in his creativity and his wisdom and his goodness. Now, perhaps the idea of worshiping God 24-7 for all eternity doesn't sound that all, all that appealing. And that's understandable if what we are imagining is a never-ending church service of just singing. As much as we love to sing together, that sounds like that could get old. But surely, in a new creation like this, our worship will, have, will happen as we live out our very physical, material, yet perfected existence. As we use our hands, our minds, our creativity, our emotions, our sight and smell and taste, everything that God has given us in very, perhaps, 
normal and natural activities, we will worship God. We will do them for His glory. Is this not what we are even called to do now? Yes. Yes. Why would worship in that day be confined merely to singing? Secondly, our hope is in the unmediated presence of God. The unmediated presence of God. Verse 3 again, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. As, as you read through Scripture, you see that one of God's primary purposes and goals is to dwell with his people. Not merely to reveal himself to them, and not merely to just be known and believed upon, but to live with, dwell amongst his people. This is the goal to, towards which he has been working from the beginning. Um, you see this as God calls the Israelites and dwells among them in the, temp, in the tabernacle and in the temple. As God sends Jesus to, to live on the earth and reveal what he is like, as Jesus dies so that we could, sinners like us, could be brought into the presence of God, we could gain access with confidence into his presence as God spends, sends his spirit to live in and dwell with us. All of this shows God's desire to be near to and dwell with his people. And then we get the final goal and picture of this here. He will dwell with them. Uh, the chapter goes on to say that they will see his face. Now, trying to grasp that kind of boggles our mind because God is spirit. But the idea is that we will be as near and close and intimate with God as possible. There will be nothing, sin or otherwise, that will separate us from Him. And we know that God's presence is good. We know that His presence is the fountain of all that is good. Just one verse, Psalm 1611 says, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. There is no better place to be than the unmediated presence of God, the presence of our, the God who created us, who saved us through the willing suffering and death of Jesus, and who is the source of all, every good and perfect gift. Now, just one of the one of the applications of this is that it means that our hope is relational. To use an example, God is not like a rich uncle or grandparent that lives far away but sends really awesome gifts. Our hope is not just to, that we will get great gifts and it'll be awesome. No, God is like a father who perfectly and unceasingly loves us and pursues us and delights in us and wants to be with us and makes that possible such that he is in, in and of himself the best gift that we could get. And any other gift just simply comes because we are near him. Because of who he is. And so the essence of the hope that we are to have is not simply stuff. Is, is not even simply contentment or peace or seeing family members who have passed away or being freed from certain things. It is the unmediated, direct, and everlasting presence of our God and King. 
And this is part of the reason why we are called to love him even now. Because that is what we will be doing for all eternity. Becoming a Christian and being Christian is not merely about believing certain things, although it involves that. It's not merely about a change in our destiny. It's not merely about being changed and being a good person, although it includes that. But even more more than that, it's a change in our heart's disposition towards God. We learn to love Him and desire Him and want to be near Him. Not all at once, not perfectly, but that is happening. And so we need to ask ourselves, if that's not happening now, if we don't find ourselves at least inklings of our life loving God and enjoying God and have no desire for God, what makes us think that 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 is our future hope? That's the essence of what we will be doing for all eternity. Have we been truly saved? And I don't mean if you don't love God, you're not trying hard enough, so stop, start trying harder. That's a fruitless endeavor. I mean that if you don't love God at all, then it's worth considering if you've truly put your faith in him. Because true faith does not happen apart from God's spirit awakening us and teaching us to desire him and love him and beginning radically, even if gradually, to change us from the inside out. No one just chooses to love God. We love because he first loved us. We see who he is and what he's done, and we respond in faith. And we continue to do that. Third, our hope is in the removal of sin and its effects. Verse 4 again, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more, Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. I think this is probably the most tangible of the the hopes that we are given. The most easy to grasp and imagine that God, in dwelling with us, will do away with all of our tears, all our mourning, all our sadness, death, pain, all of that. I mean, can you imagine being at a point in history uh, where that is all in the past? Like if saying, oh yeah, remember that? Not only that, but when none of that will hold any more control over us or darkness over us or despair or trauma over us. Now, I say it like that because I think this means not that we will completely forget about everything that had any sadness or, or death or pain attached to it. But rather that we will see these things in the light of God's wisdom and purposes in a way that is satisfying, in a way that we see what God was doing and did do and it leads us now to rejoice in that. I mean, as an example, you can think about Jesus' death. In the moment leading up to Jesus' death, There was no way of convincing his disciples that this was a good thing, right? This was tears and death and mourning and pain, and it ought not to be. It was the height of evil. 
And yet in hindsight, they, they could see what God was doing in this, and they could see his purposes and wisdom, that he was reconciling sinners to himself and conquering sin, death, and hell, and they rejoiced in it, and they thanked God for it. And we continue to do that today, right? As evil and unjust as that was, every Sunday we are celebrating God for what he did in the cross. And we are even led to believe that this will continue in the life to come as we will worship the lamb who was slain. There's no forgetting about that. And there are many other examples of this where God uses a tragic an evil situation, the loss of someone we love, the loss of a child or a parent, lifelong conditions and diseases, even a fall into sin, and all of the hurt that, that comes with it. But as God uses that for good and uses it to change our hearts and to love him and, and to display his goodness, I mean, we are told that God is working all things together for good for his people. If that is the case, then surely we won't suddenly forget all that God did and how God used these situations for good when we are in his presence. But surely it will further fuel our fire of worship and love for him. We will both worship God for how he worked in the past through, in the midst of sin and suffering. And we will certainly worship God for having done away, finally, with all sin and suffering. In, in some way that perhaps we can't fully imagine, that we can see God work through these things and remember them in a way that leads us to worship, but doesn't hold any sort of darkness or trauma or sadness with us. So, new creation unmediated presence of God and the removal of sin and its effects. And perhaps a way to kind of sum all of this up is what um, we are told with what Jesus says himself in verse 6 of this passage. To the thirsty I will give the spring from the springs of the water of life without payment. To the thirsty I will give from the springs of the water of life without payment. That is, God aims to satisfy us. Just like our thirst when we are parched and in need of some water, and that water quenches our thirst, God aims to quench our desires and longings with his presence. This is what God has been doing from the beginning, drawing people to himself that he might satisfy them. That's what God's still doing. And we get tastes of this now. We get moments of this now. We see and experience to it to a degree. We hold on to him as our greatest treasure, even when that is largely by faith. But on that day, all who are his will have their thirst fully quenched. They will find rest for their souls. They will no longer look elsewhere to idols and other false gods that seem to satisfy but don't. They will fully know and trust that God satisfies. Actually, they will not just, it will not be a matter of faith anymore. 
It will be a matter of experience. We will know that God satisfies. And we will no longer doubt his goodness and his will and his ability and power to do that. He will satisfy us deeply and we will want nothing else. Now, the other part of this, which we'll look at next week, is that this is meant to greatly affect how we live now. Just as perhaps to bring it back to the analogy at the beginning, when you are going on a really exciting vacation, you, you get excited. <laughs> and the more exciting it is, the more better and, and that it is, you, you, you use that time to look forward to it. Even when you're, you know, as is often the case, you're really busy and you're like, oh, I can't think about that yet. Nah, there's part of you that's thinking about it, right? And beginning to anticipate and get excited about that. So we are to hope in this now, and that is to affect how we live now. Let's pray.